Hello and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people for all people. My name is Evan, and this week, as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts, Stephen and Kelly. Stephen and Kelly, it's kind of been a while since we last saw each other. I think it's been uh, two weeks, in fact. What's been going on in those past two weeks? Well, I've been doing a little bit of hiking. Last weekend, I went up to a local mountain called Alta Mountain, and it was beautiful. And then we scrambled down the backside, drank water from a beautiful glacial lake. It was amazing, except there were just so many cars at the trailhead. Because, especially right now in Washington, it's been beautiful weather. People want to go outside, but our infrastructure for uh, the trails is not built to handle this amount of cars. So there's cars like lined up all up and down the roads. Sometimes we'll get there and they'll say the parking lot is closed. They so have to go somewhere else. And it's kind of messy, but I think, I mean, right now, outdoor recreation is definitely safer and better than all the other options, which is why I'm doing it. But I think it's something that uh, the people who have power to change how the uh, parks and stuff operate should be taking into account because we want more people to get outside. But we can't handle that many cars. That's our weekly PNW update with Kelly Jang. Now we'll uh, turn over to Stephen. What's uh, what's DC looking like recently, or what should I say? What's Milwaukee looking like recently? <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, Evan. Uh, yeah, so the last week or so, I was we myself and a couple of friends we like drove to Milwaukee. Now I know before everyone gets mad at me for for doing you know travel. Well, I want to let everyone know we have a pod. We have, we have four people in a pod. We're all being super safe. We're taking our masks off only with each other. Um, we took COVID tests before we left, and then we drove to Milwaukee, um, playing it super safe. We literally had zero uh, high-risk events while we were there. We drove 14 hours to get to Milwaukee. Um, we stayed on the beautiful Great uh, Great Lake of Michigan, which is quite a great lake. It was <laughs> definitely better than a good lake. It was, it was very, very great. Um and, you know, fun fact, the, the, the Great Lakes hold 20% of all the world's fresh water. And that's something I, I learned on our trip. And I've just been telling everyone that I can. So just, you know, this is a whole fun fact for you to tell at your next uh, COVID party that you have. I, I hope no one's having COVID parties because, you know, I'm not the one where you're supposed to try to get COVID. Virtual COVID parties. We got back. Um, we drove 14 hours back and we passed by South Bend, Indiana, well, we said hi to Mayor Pete, and uh, <laughs> Kelly called me in the middle of our road trip and started talking about some more strategy that we have. But yeah, it was a great, great trip, great vacation. Like, got a little taste of summer. That's like swim on like some beaches that are all like freshwater beaches, which was pretty, pretty incredible. Um, yeah, now back in DC, back, back to the real world. Snap back to reality. <laughs> um, so you know, on on the renewable generation, we like to keep things uh, for the most part pretty civil. Uh, but what you go, what you don't see behind the scenes is the constant struggle and debate between Stephen and Kelly. But this week, we're going to let it shine. So we kind of got a little preview of it last week during Stephen's Green News spiel. But this week, we're really going to let Stephen and Kelly battle it out regarding Stephen's love of Elon Musk. <laughs> and through this debate, we're talking about the future of transportation. So uh, keep in mind that that's the topic of today, Stephen and Kelly, while we talk about Elon or other other non-Elon topics. All right. Well, let's let's begin the conversation with the fact that Tesla is a revolutionary company. Okay? So that's we cannot deny the fact that Tesla put electric vehicles on the map. Tesla, Elon Musk, they they put electric vehicles on the map. None of this industry would even exist right now if not for Tesla. 
Um, because you know, you know what? The fact is, before Tesla even existed, there were electric vehicles out, out, out on the market. There was like the Nissan Leaf. There was like the Chevy Volt, um, and like the com- com- competitors. And there was no interest at all. There was very, very, very low market interest. And the reason why is because their market strategy was to create a, a cheap and reliable car that happened to be electric. It was a very similar uh, marketing strategy to the Prius, the Toyota Prius, which is like another cheap, um, affordable, and reliable car, right? And the Prius is a great car. A lot of people went for it. But the electric vehicles, the thing is with electric vehicles, you, you face the, the, the anxiety of range anxiety. You might, start, you might start to think, okay, am I going to be able to charge up to the next station before I need to refill? Um, but Tesla's changed, changed the way that, change the way that um, people think about electric vehicles. Cool. So I would say that you say put you said Tesla put electric vehicles on the map, but you're taking a very American-centric worldview. If we look at China, BYD has been making all classes of electric vehicles, including buses, for like, I mean, they started after Tesla, so they've been in action for the last five years, but now there's like hundreds of thousands of BYD buses out there in the world in China, and electric buses are actually causing a lot more Um, environmental benefit than electric cars because they're bigger, use more fuel. And as a result, I mean, this is due in part also to the fact that the Chinese government um, substantially sponsors um, BYD and basically forced all the cities to adopt electric buses, which is why they've been able to move forward so quickly. But I think that saying that Tesla is the one true savior of us all when they're just building like a Cybertruck and elite cars I think that's kind of a fallacy. Maybe I'm straw manning you. Yes, exactly. I would say, okay, 100% agree. I am taking a very American-centric view, so you're totally valid in there. Yeah, definitely straw manning me. I'm not saying that they're the one savior. I'm saying that Tesla is the reason that the electric vehicle, single, like, passenger, like, you know, civilian passenger vehicles, they are the reason that those exist. Um, totally right, though. I mean, like, electric buses, I'm so in favor of that. Electric, you know, any, any other type of transportation Let's do it. Let's electrify it. But specifically with cars, Tesla is the reason that any of that really exists in America. So I've, I'm just to uh, ask a question based off something you said, Stephen. Uh, you're talking about how like Tesla kind of put electric vehicles on the map, and they're kind of they're making them cool uh, for people to own. Like everyone wants a Tesla now. But is that maybe I don't. <laughs> everyone <laughs> except for Kelly wants to drive a Tesla. But is that the right way to go about it? Te- I mean, Kelly mentioned electric buses, and maybe what are what are the merits of making electric vehicles cool versus increasing like electric uh, public transportation? Well, this is where I get into my uh, critique of Tesla's entire worldview. Their view is kind of like te- techno utopia, where you're just in your little bubble, you're in your Tesla car, blinders on, you don't have to see anyone else, you have the full autopilot, you can sleep in your car. Even the Hyperloop, I think there's this mock-up where it it showed the Tesla cars parked inside the Hyperloop train rather than it being like a source of public transit. And to me, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the entire vibe of Tesla is just like, oh, if you're rich and elite, then you can access our nice, sleek-looking stuff and you can be sustainable and zero-carbon and sleek, whereas actually, actually everyone needs access to sustainable technology. So moving away from the topic of transportation momentarily, what we've seen in California right now with the wildfires, right? Some people have the Tesla Powerballs. The hard, uh, the hardware, actually, Tesla already has the hardware to be able to island from the grid. But having the rich people island themselves from the grid when there's a public safety power shutoffs, shutoffs, that's 
I think, good for them. But we also need to make sure that the essential infrastructure, like senior centers, hospitals, grocery stores that need electricity to be able to function are still able to, are also able to access um, these resources. And I think Tesla is kind of been lobbying against these kinds of efforts. Cool. I, I 100% agree. You know, Kelly, like you bring up environmental justice concerns, essentially, you're saying like, these technologies are great, but they come, they come down from a top down standpoint, in terms of dollars, like the it's really expensive and then like lower income people can't afford it. That's totally a valid concern. And it, it's something that I'm very focused on as well, especially with solar energy, for example, we want to make sure that everyone has access to this democratized and superior energy. The thing is though, the fact is that that's how technology works. Um, that's how it always has worked. Like if we look, look back through history at like the horse and buggy and moving to cars, it always, technology always starts off being expensive because people haven't figured out how to make it cheap yet. But the technology gets better and better incrementally and gets cheaper and cheaper. You can say the same thing with solar energy, wind energy. We've seen the cost curves. I know you're very aware of the cost curves, Kelly, that they come down exponentially in price throughout the time, throughout the years. So what I'm saying, what I'm arguing here is that Tesla was responsible for the spark and is, is driving down that cost curve more so than any other private company in, in, the, in the world for electric vehicles. Um, and not to mention the fact that it's not just electric vehicles, right? It's also batteries. Like battery technology itself has become so incredibly cheap over the last couple of years. It still has a way to, a ways to go, but it's come down so fast because of electric vehicles. And that, and again, electric vehicles are there because of Tesla. So that's why I'm such a huge proponent, such a big stand for Tesla and Elon Musk is because even if they're not going to be the ones that save the world, they're going to be the ones that, that kickstarted it all and started the ball rolling. And then everyone else can pick up after that. So, Stephen, we give you a lot of time to stand over Elon Musk, but Kelly, is there anyone you're a stan of? Oh, yes. If so, who? <laughs> well, I would say in terms of electric car companies, I stan Rivian because their message is kind of like, this is the ultimate adventure vehicle to get outside. And my whole shtick is like, hey, I want to be able to use my electric vehicle when I acquire one right now, I do not drive an electric vehicle. I shamefully drive a gas guzzling SUV. <laughs> Yikes, I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> you have an SUV, Kelly? Hey, it was it was a hand-me-down from my parents. <laughs> so that's that's my excuse. But hey, I'm being open and honest, right? I think that's definitely my biggest environmental sin, but it's also a used car. So where does that put me, right? I mean so I drive to recreate. I would like to be able to drive an electric vehicle to recreate. And I think that's the mission that um, Rivian is going for. And I think they're kind of selling it to the outdoor adventure crowd. So they've done some sponsorship stuff with people like Alex Honnold, the free solo guy. They recently did this. Um, they provided some vehicles to this reality show where these guys were motorcycling across there from like South America to North America. And I think they basically want to show that their vehicles are really adventurous and awesome. And I think it's kind of like the outdoor adventure aspect of it to, that appeals to me a lot more than the kind of like cyberpunk aesthetic of Tesla. And I guess maybe that's a personal opinion. But I think based on talking to a lot of people within the outdoor community, including conservatives, they're just like, oh, Tesla people are like rich techies who don't know what they're talking about but they all freaking love the Rivian truck because it looks awesome it's a great vehicle so actually my good friend who's an electrician who's like ah oh, I would love an, a Rivian truck so much it would be so awesome so I think maybe if you were within this bubble of techies everyone's like oh Tesla's amazing Tesla's amazing but if you really go out and talk to people they feel like a lot of people do feel like Tesla cars are reserved for the rich 
even the Model 3, it costs like $50,000. That's not affordable. The base model is $35,000, but if you want, I think most people actually end up paying $50,000 or so. Um, and re Stevens' point about the batteries, Tesla is now partnering with CATL, a Chinese company that makes lithium ferrous phosphate, LFP batteries, um, to create their cobalt-free batteries. So they are leading on the NCA nickel uh, cobalt aluminum uh, battery technology, but they are now actually partnering with a Chinese company for their next generation of batteries. So that's just another piece of food for thought. Right. Um, yeah, and I think, you know what, I, I also say Rivian's awesome. I love Rivian. I think it's a great company and I would love a Rivian myself. You know, I, I think the competition is good. Honestly. Um, the fact that Tesla and Rivian are now coming head to head and they're like poaching tech tech talent from each other. That's a good thing. Like I, as long as it's not destructive competition, like as long as no one's sabotaging each other, you want to have competition in this space because it's going to drive people to work harder, to innovate faster, to make technology cheaper. And that's at the end of the day, Let's keep our let's keep our end goal in sight, right? We want to we want to have uh, clean energy and, and electric vehicles for everyone in society. Ideally, you know, another thing, you know, as, as we talked about, ideally we can move away from like single passenger vehicles and more towards like public transportation, like buses and trains and and public transportation like that. I also just think, I mean, we live in the United States of America, where that is a very like I just think the the cultural consciousness of America is very like. I want to own a car. I want my own freedom. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult to change that consciousness of our society. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think if you live in anywhere in America other than Seattle, you would believe that. But in here in Seattle, actually, we've been building out this light rail project um, sound, through Sound Transit. Actually, the light rail project is way ahead of schedule. Like the sp- speed of construction is amazing. And I think that's partly due to COVID because now they have absolutely no qualms about closing roads. Because no one's driving anywhere anyway. You can make people take a detour. They don't care. And so the light rail is being constructed quickly. There's a lot of associated housing development with new apartment complexes, condo complexes being built close to where the transit center is going to be. It's super walkable. It's it's honestly like really impressive and amazing to me that this is happening so quickly. And to me, it gives me a lot of hope if we can do it here in Seattle, in America. Hopefully, this is a model that can be exported elsewhere but I don't know, maybe Washington is just a perfect utopia and nowhere else can be like us. But that's kind of why I choose to live here. And also, um, in addition to that, I would say we do still have some issues, like specifically the driving to trailheads. Um, they did have, so our, the county did have the service called Trailhead Direct where you could take a shuttle bus from downtown Seattle or Issaquah to the trailheads. It was a pretty, it was not that popular of a service. I think I know that the people who I know who used it were people who like didn't own cars. Um, And it's shut down this year because of COVID. But I hope that once there's a vaccine, we can restart this program and potentially even start considering using electric buses for this because that bus runs very infrequently. And it's like, it's like a single route. It's like you pick up, drop off, like very easy. And it would be a perfect contender to start using electric buses here in the Pacific Northwest. So, uh. I don't know. I tweeted at uh, the King County executive saying they should do electric buses. I'm I'm going to try to see if there's any official channel where I can put in public comment to do that. But I think it would be awesome. Ding, 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 ding. Huh? What's that? That's the bell for our closing statements. Let's hear, uh, summarize your argument, everything you've said so far, in a single statement. Let's start with Kelly. 
Yeah, I guess my closing statement is that we need everything, not just electric cars. Um, we need electric buses. We need better urban design. We need um, public transportation, and it needs to be accessible for everyone. And I don't think Tesla's the one to do that. All right. Now let's hear from Stephen. Okay, thanks. I would say that my closing statement would be that Tesla may not be the one that will save or revolutionize uh, transportation on its own, but where we are right now, the progress we've made with electric vehicles is due in a large, vast majority to Tesla, to the Tesla brand, to the Tesla techie, yuppie, and you know, um, yes, the luxury branding that it has which is problematic also. But the fact that we are here, the fact that battery costs have come down, all of those things we have to thank Tesla for. And that's why I will continue to support and, and stand uh, Tesla and Elon Musk. Man, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have the merits to decide who won this argument, but I think our audience might be able to. We're going to put a Twitter poll up on our uh, Twitter account at GenRenewPod this week uh, after the episode comes out on Wednesday. And you guys can, uh, can pick. Steven? Or Kelly. And now it's time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Did you know the song Electric Feel by MGMT was originally called Electric Vehicle, but their record label was paid off by Ford? (laughs) That was Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. You guys didn't like that one, huh? <laughs> are we sub- like are we supposed to laugh in those? Like, can we like will you edit? Because like I always like quiet my laughter because like I don't know. Do we want do you want to hear my laughter in there? I kinda like it better when you don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> just in general or yeah, just, you know, I, I, it makes me strive to be better. That's good. That's good then. Then uh then I'm I'm fine with my non laughter. So uh, sometimes we get a bit off the rails in our discussion, but uh, this week we're trying to keep the discussion on the rails, just like the future of transportation. (laughs) Electric trains. Let's start with uh, long distance travel by rail. Is it possible in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I would say that if we look at what's been going on with high speed rail in California, it's pretty grim. At the time that they started trying to develop high-speed rail. This is what, like 2007-2009? I think they thought that by now we would have high-speed rail between San Francisco and LA. Instead, we have high-speed rail between, uh, what was it, Bakersfield and Merced, um, which is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's just like a testament to how difficult it is to get construction projects done in the US that they just absolutely haven't been able to build this because in the time that they've trying that they've been trying to build this one train line in the US the amount of high speed rail stations and rail lines that they built in China they've built like tens of thousands of kilometers of rail and it's so convenient so when i was studying abroad in China i could walk from the university to the high speed rail station it was a 20 minute walk i would go there scan my phone Get on the train. Within 90 minutes, I would be in another city 400 kilometers away to visit my family. And it was just so convenient. And I think in uh, the U.S., we just lack imagination. We don't have – we argue over whether or not high-speed rail is a good idea or not rather than arguing about where we should be building the high-speed rail. And I think that's kind of holding us back. 
So there is a um, proposal for doing high-speed rail in the Pacific Northwest. I think it's like Cascadia, something or other. So that would be connecting Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver by high-speed rail. I think given that we've been successful so far with building the light, local light rail around Seattle, I think this <laughs> initiative is at least somewhat likely to move forward, especially relative to what's going on in California. But I don't know. U.S. needs to step its game up. Yeah, you know, I think the whole idea, I, I, the whole idea of the high speed rail is uh, interesting because you know it's always it's it's pretty much always too expensive whenever governments look at it. Um, but you know, right now we're in a very significant and unique moment in time where we have, you know, how many thirty million unemployed or more since COVID. Um, you know, we have uh, we have a huge stimulus package that we're going to need to enact and get people jobs and get them back to working. Um, so, and, and not to mention also, not to mention also, cause people always scoff about bills. Like when they say, oh, it's costing too much. Let's just not forget that the, that the U S government printed $2 trillion of money out of thin air and injected it right into the economy. Most of which those dollars went into the stock market. So let's not forget, like people always say, oh, do we have the money? Can we spend the money on that? That is complete malarkey. I'll just put it that way. It's not, it's, that's such a BS argument because they just printed two trillion dollars out of nowhere and injected it into the economy. So they we have the means. It's just a matter of the political will. So if we want to build a a high speed rail in the United States, maybe a national um, you know railway that connects the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Midwest, we can do that. And in fact, we should do that. We should do that. We should build transmission lines. We should you know incentivize solar and wind to you know, explode. Um, we, we, we need to get people back to working. We need to fall, solve this unemployment problem and we need to solve climate change. And this is one of the ways that we can do that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think a lot of people have been talking about how to quote unquote build back better. Um, you could call this the green new deal, or you could call this something like putting Americans back to work, which I think most conservatives would be on board with, right? They don't want people to be sitting at home doing nothing, collecting unemployment. Most people don't want to do that either. And so I think paying people to build high-speed rail, paying people to plant trees, paying people to build transmission lines, paying people to build hydrogen pipelines. I mean, you can social distance on a construction site. You're probably wearing a mask anyway. And I think just like having tens of millions of people unemployed for this long is not sustainable just for society and for our collective mental health. And I think putting people to work, building high-speed rail is a great way to um, spend the money that we're printing out of thin air. Because... Putting that money into the stock market doesn't actually create jobs. So I know I said earlier that we'd be keeping this topic on the rails, but some believe where we're going, we don't need rails. Oh, that was so good, Evan. That was a good one. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> so let's talk about us. <laughs> Nothing like getting hyped up mid-podcast. Uh, so let's talk about sustainable aviation. Uh, Kelly. Yeah. Um, so in terms of sustainable aviation, so I would say my head is in the clouds, you know, so I'm all about that sustainable aviation feet, not on the ground because I'm just pretty out there. Um, but in terms of sustainable aviation, so in terms of international travel, all the airlines basically agreed that post 20, a 2020 baseline, all the additional growth in international travel the amount of carbon that they generate from that, they would purchase offsets to offset this um, carbon emissions. And uh, CEO of, of an environmental consulting company said something to the effect of, Greta made all these uh, airlines feel guilty, which is why they're doing it, which 
made me giggle. Um, but in terms of aviation in the long term, I think that um, sustainable aviation, especially long haul flights, is just going to be extremely difficult. For short haul flights, I think maybe you could do like electric planes, but that would be really short, maybe flying like 60 to 100 miles. But for shorter trips, rail is so much easier to electrify. We already have electric rail, so that would be the solution. For long haul flights, we might need some kind of biofuels, but that is something that we just like we're not even sure what kind of technology that would be. Yeah, you know, um, I I would actually point back to okay, I think electric uh, electric air, aircraft was it electric aviation will take off. I think that it will um, actually take off and, and be extremely um, ubiquitous in our society. And I point to several startups that are several startups that are already doing this. Actually, there's um, the main one I'd like to point your attention to is one called Eviation. It's an Israeli-based startup um, that stole the 53rd International Paris Air Show in June of 2019. It unveiled its its battery-powered all-electric nine-seater, um, and it's the first of its kind zero-emission plane. It's already been um, it's already backed by several uh, venture capital funds, um, and it's essentially a giant battery that has wings and like a wheel. It's, it's huge, a huge battery. Um, it's already, you know, it's already, um, plan It's already, uh, had its maiden test flight in late of 20, in late 2019. And it, um, it plans to be FAA certified by late 2021. Um, and it, it has already landed a first contract with Cape air, the largest independent U S regional airline. So this is something, another technology that's already taking off. And to my point earlier in the show, this is another technology that's going to be extremely expensive when you first start to do it. No one has done this kind of technology so far. It's going to be expensive, but it's possible. So with these first initial like airplanes that are that are built by aviation, they're going to be extremely expensive, probably only going to go to billionaires or millionaires. But as they get better and better at figuring out how to engineer these things, the price is going to come down. The same way that Tesla has done that. They started off with the Roadster. It came down to the Model S, Model 3, Model X, and then Model Y. It's the same. It's the same cost curve that I'm talking about. Technology always starts off expensive, and as we get better and better, it comes down in price, which means more people are are able to afford it. Yeah, I just looked up aviation, and turns out they have a lot of uh, career opportunities in Redmond, Washington. So I'll I'll try to scope out, figure out where their office is, because actually, speaking of our good friend Elon Musk, the SpaceX office is like within walking distance of my house. So. <laughs> So that's that's just a random aside. Um, Steven, I would encourage you, though, to think about the fact that batteries are just inherently heavier than liquid fuels. And so for an airplane, the size of the battery you need for, I'm talking like transatlantic flights, I don't think it's going to happen. Your, your doubt is my fuel, Kelly. Your doubt is my fuel. I mean, we're, okay, maybe it could work, but we're not going to be able to transport as many people on a flight as we do now. Or they're going to have like way more strict weight limits for luggage or something like that because they have all these batteries. I mean, there really is a physical limit to the um, weight of a lithium-ion battery. Um, there's potential with aluminum batteries to actually de- to increase the energy density of batteries by like three x. Um, because so an aluminum uh, ion is three plus, so it can take three electrons, whereas lithium is only one plus. So the aluminum battery can be three times as energy dense, but the issue is no one has figured out how to make a rechargeable aluminum battery. So if we have... Yet. A, no yeah. one has figured that out yet. No one has figured that out yet. I think the lab-scale breakthrough is at least five to ten years um, away. 
Um, and then commercialization would probably take another five to 10 years. So, I mean, if we decide to go all in on that, it could be very interesting. But at least right now, aluminum batteries are not a super hot topic. I think for electric aviation, if we did have them, it would actually be a game changer. So, Stephen, maybe uh, your next startup idea should be uh, aluminum batteries. <laughs> uh, we'll see about that. But, you know, you bring up a, a great a great point on the whole aviation side of like, okay, so, you know, even though when I, as I'm like dangling this idea of aviation and like electric electric planes taking off really in, in earnest, um, you know, as to your point, it's going to be uh, at some point in the future. You don't, it's not going to be right now. So what can we do like right now to really, to really like decrease our transmission emissions? Um, and we can just start talking about like, look at what COVID has done to our business operations. Everything is now virtual. Like I can speak from personal experience. I used to fly to Minnesota um, at least four or five times every quarter, um, if not more. Um, and a lot of that was for, for flight I didn't need to do. It was just meetings. But, um, you know, they just – the old world and the old way of doing things, you had to be there face-to-face to have a meeting. Like I think COVID and, and just this whole virtual teleconferencing situation – has shown us that we can we actually do have the technology and the means to move past that and and you know you can have a lot of meetings just with a phone call or you know a quick screen share and they can be just as just as um, effective as an in person. I think you you will always have you know on the other side you will always have this like lack of personal touch like it's something different to be able to shake someone's hand to look at them directly in the eye and get like emotional feedback from them when you're speaking you know grab grab a drink after work you know go to go to dinner grab a lunch there's those things will. I think, in my opinion, will always be more effective in terms of sales and in terms of b- developing relationships. But so many of these are just just strictly business or like technical meetings can be ha- can be done over Zoom. So we we can definitely like decrease our trans our our transportation emissions right now by doing that. And in fact, that we in fact we are. Yeah, so. I totally agree. So my company, we've been doing all this uh, remote meetings for a long time because. My team, the technology team for Centrica Business Solutions, a lot of our colleagues are in the UK. We are not flying to the UK willy-nilly to have meetings with them all the time because, I mean, first of all, it's because we were kind of cost-cutting. And second of all, I mean, if you're just flying to the UK to have like a couple meetings, it's not even worth it. Like the amount of time that you spend in transit, you could be more efficiently like sleeping, eating, like working or doing anything else. And I think we've realized in COVID, like actually you don't need to meet people in person. I think some amount of business travel will resume. Like for instance, I think maybe our managing director will come visit us once a year for a week or something like that. But that's still a far cry from what was going on before where people would just willy-nilly travel to have just to like hang out with people and shake their hands and get drinks. I think the amount of business travel is going to decrease significantly because it also does take a lot of time and that amount of traveling does take a toll on the employees and makes you less productive. All right. Well, I think it's time for the segment that's co-sponsored by Senator Ed Markey. It's the Green News Spiel. Stephen, why don't you start us out? All right. Well, uh, my Green News Spiel. Um, okay. So many, some of you may have heard that over the past uh, week, we uh, we experienced on Earth the hottest temperature ever recorded in humanity's, you know, memory. Um, this is this was recorded on Sunday, uh, August 16th. At, at, in Death Valley, California, at 130 degrees Fahrenheit, this is this is huge. This should be a, extremely alarming news for all of us. In the, when we hear about the data, the fact that 
every year is getting hotter than the last. Every summer is hotter. Every every summer, every new year, we have more wildfires, more weather catastrophes. Like this, it gets hard to like keep trying to keep yourself real and be like, oh shit, this is actually hugely alarming. This is one of those moments, okay? 130 degrees. If you give it five more additional degrees, you would you'd be able to cook a steak medium rare. Think about that. Um, so what my green spiel is here. So um, amidst all this fire seasons going on right now in the West Coast, like up and down California, up and down the West Coast, and Colorado, it's, it's really from Colorado, it's westward. We're seeing all these fires. I'd like to shout out um, a startup that uh, one of my friends is actually, she, she founded herself. It's called Perimeter. Um, Perimeter, um, it's, it's, a, it's an app, um, and the website is called fireperimeter.com. It's essentially, it's an app. Um, she, she's a daughter of a fire marshal in California and they face wildfires all the time. Like those first responders are putting their life on the line every time that they have to deal with these fires. And, um, there are a lot of times they're just using maps, very old, old school maps. And they're getting information from like every five minutes from like some centralized station. And it's old technology, technology that they're using to fight these fires. So she, her whole app is to provide firefighters real time data. So they'll be able to open up their phone and say, okay, this is exactly where the fire is right now. And this is exactly where we need to you know, tackle it. So it's just providing more data and more resolution to the firefighters to be able to effectively like combat these wildfires. And I think, I just think it's an incredibly important app. Um, I wish her all the best, so much success. And like, you know, it's so important, the work that she's doing too. So, you know, give her, give her a shout out, check her out. Um, again, it's called fireperimeter.com. Cool. So this one is um, not in the US, it's in the UK. So this year, the UK is planning on putting out their new RHI, or Renewable Heat Incentive Policy. Basically, this year they're expected to either um, put out their strategy on hydrogen and say, like, yes, we're going to commit to hydrogen, or they're going to put out their timeline for committing to hydrogen. So they're going to kick the can down the road for another five years and say, in 2025, we'll make the decision. I personally think that they should really just commit to building the hydrogen infrastructure as a way to build back better from COVID. Um, and I think that uh, the UK really has the chance to show leadership on this because a lot of countries, they're kind of aware that they will need hydrogen as a form of seasonal storage, but a lot of them have kind of been dragging their feet because they're like, oh, the technology isn't there yet. We don't have the electrolyzers. We don't have the hydrogen equipment. But in reality, the, the fact of the matter is, so my company works... I work for an energy company and we're like, oh, we can't do hydrogen until we have a strong signal from the government that hydrogen is going to be the thing that happens. Look, we need the signal from the government that they're going to commit to building out a robust and reliable hydrogen supply to be able to do the technology development. So the role of the government here is to step up, say, you know what? We've heard from um, our companies. They want reliability and they want business certainty. And so we're going to say, yes, we will commit to hydrogen now and set them off on this path of technology deployment. Views my own, not that of my employer. Um, but I think um, I think really anyone who has studied this space realizes that you can't decarbonize winter heat with only electricity because there's going to be some cold days that are not sunny, there's no wind, and you are going to need some source of electricity and I think having that be hydrogen that's stored from excess offshore wind and solar from the summer is way better than that being natural gas. And we need to move full speed ahead towards that future. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your green news spiels. And with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Renewable Generation. 
You can catch us on our Twitter at GenWenewPod. We're uh, we're starting to use Twitter a bit more. Uh, Kelly might have had a a little breakthrough last night uh, per recording, so four nights from now, whenever this comes out. But uh, you can catch us there. You can catch us on Facebook, the Renewable Generation, or you can just you can catch us uh, individually at Honeycombs Junior, at Sustainably Steve, at Kelly M Jang, and we'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.